Okay, uh, we're gonna go ahead and get started. I wanna remind you guys that we are at the beginning of, uh, wow, I was really trying to be loud, okay. Uh, <laughs> we are at the beginning of a new sermon series. Uh, we started it last week, and we're talking about different interactions that Jesus has with people throughout the Gospels. And our title for the sermon series is Be Curious, which is inspired by Ted Lasso, which is not just a show I love, but all of our pastors love. So I guess that's where the title came from for that. But really, has to do with, uh, I love this idea of, of curiosity, and that curiosity is so important, isn't it? It really, curiosity is the lifeblood of any relationship, right? To be in relationship with a person is to, to be curious about them. And maybe we know that that's true or most true through what happens when, when the curiosity in a relationship has died. Have you ever been in a relationship like that? A friendship like that? It can be any kind of relationship, right? where you don't need to ask the other person any questions anymore or where you don't think you need to because you already know how they're going to respond to everything you could ever ask? Have you ever had someone treat you like that in a relationship? And when that's true, what's happened is that the relationship has been flattened out. That you've been reduced or the other person in the relationship has been reduced to just a character. Someone who's been totally figured out, who's really not worth knowing. And we can feel like that sometimes coming to church, can't we? And if you've been a part of the church for a long time, some of you have been doing this for decades, you roll in here and you think, well, what am I going to hear new this morning, right? That everything you could ever know about Jesus, you already know. Or maybe you're re-engaging with church for the first time, and the Jesus that, you, uh, that you've known or that you've been told about has been someone that you are not interested in at all. That what you've been told about him has actually stamped down your curiosity. Or maybe you're here because you are curious. Maybe this whole idea of Jesus uh, being the son of God is something that is very new to you and you're leaning in and you're wondering, who, who is this? What I'm, what I'm hopeful for in this series is that however you are coming in here, that what would be stoked in you is a curiosity that would draw you toward Jesus. That through, through walking through the Gospels together, that we would grow more curious as we go. That the more that we learn about Jesus, that the more we would want to know. Because although Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, he is the, what we believe is that he is the revelation of God, which means that his character, his person is so deep that we will never be able to exhaust the, the depth of who he is. That there will always be more for us to learn. That that's true about Jesus as a person and it's true about God's word that has revealed Jesus Christ to us. Because what Jesus tells us is that all of Scripture speaks his name from the first page to the last page. That means there's always more for us to lean into, to be curious about, about Jesus. So what we're hopeful for in this sermon series is that it would be stoking our curiosity. So to help us practice that, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Laura Homan to come up. Laura is going to read 
God's word for us this morning. We're going to be in John 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. It will also be up on the screen, okay? But I'm going to ask you a question when we've finished. And the question I'm going to ask you is, what are you curious about? Okay, so as you listen to Laura read, as you look at the text up on the screen, I want you to be wondering and paying attention to what you're curious about. Because after she's done, I'm going to ask you, what from this text are you curious about? Okay, are you with me? Okay, great. Here, come on here so they can see your face, Laura. Good. Okay, great. <laughs> John 1, 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Thanks, Laura. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. And we confess so often that we uh, bring the same kind of skepticism that Nathaniel brings when we come to interact with you. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for the way that you uh, meet Nathaniel on that with truth and with grace. And we ask that you would do that in our hearts this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what from that passage are you curious about? What's up with the fig tree? Yes. What's the deal with Nazareth? Nazareth, yes. Yeah, this whole ascending, descending thing. Yes, what else? What happens after that? How did Jesus know what? How did Jesus know his name? Yes. Okay, one more. Why is there no deceit in Nathaniel? Okay, what, what I'm hoping is happening as we're going through these stories, I'm, I was going to say that we'll do this every week this semester. That might be a lot, but I like the idea of it at least, right? Because what I want to stoke is this idea that we would be curious about Scripture because we're curious about Jesus. You know, that if you're in one of our small groups, that's actually why we've changed the order of our small group discussions for this semester. What we're hoping is that because you're interacting with the scripture for the first time in small group rather than hearing it here first, is that it will actually help draw some of that curiosity out of you. Because sometimes what can happen is we think, well, I've heard the sermon about it, so I already know all the answers. Well, I will tell you that's, first of all, that's not true because I preach the sermon and I don't have all the answers. But we can go into group feeling like that's true. And so we've switched the order trying to, again, just keep us in a place where our curiosity about Jesus is being stoked. And what, what we see in this passage, what we're going to talk about this morning, we'll, we will answer some of those questions, 
Some of them we won't. Uh, but we're going to talk about how Jesus responds to skepticism. And then we're going to talk about our response to skepticism. So how Jesus responds to skepticism and then our response to skepticism. So here in John, we find ourselves at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it kind of makes me think of um, the beginning of the Avengers movie when they're going around and like trying to gather all the superheroes together, right? Like g- getting everybody together so they can go on the mission that, they, that they've been set. Uh, really, I, mostly I thought of Ocean's Eleven actually, but I thought the Avengers would be more relevant. So that's <laughs> what we went with. Uh, when they're g- kind of getting the, getting the gang together, right, to go on this mission. And that's what's happening here in John 1 is these disciples are being gathered to Jesus. And throughout this, throughout this, this chapter, uh, we've got this line, come and see, which if you were here with us in January, you know is an important part of the vision for our congregation, that we would be a come and see congregation. And what's happened right before this is that John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, hey, that's the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples go and follow Jesus. And then they go and they get two more of their friends to come with them to follow Jesus. So Andrew goes and gets Peter and there's this unnamed guy, this unnamed disciple who we think might be the apostle John who may go get his brother James. So again, this, this crew is kind of assembling around Christ. And we get the next phase of that in this passage that we read this morning. So Philip goes to Nathaniel and says to him, we found the one of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what Philip is pulling on is this passage in Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses, in one of his sermons to the people of Israel, says, God is going to raise up another prophet like me from among you, and when that happens, you need to listen to him. You think about who Moses was in the history of the nation of Israel. He was this uh, paradigm of the intermediary between uh, man and God, right? He spoke to the people on God's behalf, and he spoke to God on the people's behalf. And what what Moses told the people is that there will be another one who will come to you who will be like me, and you need to listen to him. And what Philip says to his friend Nathaniel is, we have found that guy, That's a bold claim, right? The nation of Israel has been waiting hundreds, if not thousands of years for this to happen. And Philip is saying, it's here. And it's it's a guy who lives down the street in this city called Nazareth. And Nathaniel says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That what he's met with is this thoroughgoing skepticism. And, and part of what we find here is just kind of the normal prejudice that people have uh, against one, one, from one place to another, right? Like when I, when I moved here and started going to school, I, what I tell people when they ask where I'm from is I'm from California. And people are like, at least at the time, we're like, wow, that's so exotic. And I was like, I know. I am. Thank you. But after I had been here two or three years, there were more people from California who, who started at my school. And... Uh, if I was meeting someone new, they'd say, oh, oh, Brant's from California. And the other person from California would ask, oh, where in California? And I would say Bakersfield. And they would go, oh, that's not California. That's the armpit of California. And I was like, okay, first of all, that's rude. But the, the attitude there was the attitude of Nathaniel, right? It was, can anything good come out of Bakersfield, right? Is what they were saying. 
That's what Nathaniel is saying. He's got that kind of geographical prejudice that we all have about certain places. The way it works out in him is skepticism. But I also think that there is something that's deeper that's happening in Nathaniel as well. You think about the promise that his friend has just told him is being realized. That a mediator was coming between God and man, someone who could speak the words of God to you and know, oh, I'm hearing from the Lord when I hear from this person. That's the claim that Philip was making about Jesus. That there is someone here who can speak on our behalf to God for us directly. And Nathaniel pushes that away. Could it be because Nathaniel feels that that is too good to be true? That he's skeptical because his curiosity has become devoid of hope. That he has lived uh, enough life to know not to expect news that is too good. Or to doubt news that seems too good. Because time and time again, his hopes have been disappointed. And so instead of being curious and being hopeful, he's become skeptical. That that news is too good to be true. How do you expect Jesus to respond to Nathaniel's skepticism? Like if we had not read the entirety of this passage and you had just heard that, that Nathaniel's reaction to the Son of God was Nazareth, like an eye roll, which in my house growing up was always the worst thing you could do, roll your eyes, right? Which is what Nathaniel does to God here. How do you expect Jesus to respond to that? That maybe when Nathaniel comes, he's going to kind of slap him around a little bit? Set him straight. There would be some harshness maybe in Jesus' interaction that maybe Jesus would be skeptical of him. I think what is true about us as people is that what we expect, how we expect Jesus to react is how we know we would react, right? Which is with hardness of heart. And what I, want, what I want us to see is how Jesus actually responds to Nathaniel. But it's important that we're honest with ourselves about what we expect so that we can actually be surprised by how Jesus responds. So this is what Jesus says to him. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Do you realize Jesus compliments Nathaniel on his skepticism? He commends it. What he's saying is, this is a man who is looking for truth. And he celebrates that in Nathaniel. Because what he knows is that, is that the skepticism that Nathaniel is expressing is really curiosity. It's just a curiosity that's lost its hope. And Jesus sees that in him and he celebrates it. Then Nathaniel, still skeptical, right? How do you know me? like when someone's acting a little bit too chummy with you and you're like, okay, right? You don't know me. This is what we get from Nathaniel here. How do you know me?
And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, what is with the fig tree? We don't know. It seems like whatever, whatever is going on there, there, Jesus displays a supernatural knowledge. We see that somewhat based on uh, Nathaniel's reaction to Jesus. If Jesus had just kind of like passed by Nathaniel and Nathaniel hadn't recognized him, he would not uh, be so amazed that Jesus knew he was under the fig tree. So what Jesus demonstrates here is a supernatural knowledge about Philip, excuse me, about Nathaniel. That he knew something about him that Nathaniel did not expect Jesus to know. That he actually knew Jesus could not have known if Jesus was just a man. And do you see what Jesus is doing here? Is he meets Nathaniel's questions and desire for truth with truth about himself. He, in essence, gives Nathaniel a sign. Maybe you're thinking, whoa, aren't there other places in Scripture where Jesus doesn't give people signs when they ask for them? Yes, that's true. It happens just a few chapters later in John 6. The people come to him and they say, well, show us a sign. And Jesus doesn't do it. So what's the difference? When all of these other instances where people demand Jesus show them a sign, uh, Jesus has already given them signs. Like in John 6, when the people ask him for a sign, uh, those are the people who he's just fed with like two loaves and five fishes or two fishes and five loaves or whatever, with just with not that much food, right, is the point. They've just experienced it. They've just eaten it, and yet they're, here they are asking Jesus for another sign. And what that says about their hearts and what is often true about our hearts is that we would rather seek sensationalism or find refuge in cynicism than actually engage in, in, a, in a quest for truth. And what was so often true about the crowds is that they were, they were looking for something sensational. They were looking to be confirmed in their cynicism more than they were looking for something that was true. And so Jesus, in his care for them and in his love for them, does not give them something that's only going to further confirm them in those two paths. So we see Jesus respond in a kind, loving, revelational way to Nathaniel, who's curious about truth. And this is Nathaniel's response. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I'm like, whoa, that's some serious whip- whiplash, right? To go from all of that skepticism to confessing that Jesus is the son of God? But what I want to highlight there is what that, what that shows us is that Nathaniel had a desire to know what was true and Jesus met him in that desire. And then Jesus takes it a step further. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Oh, you will see greater things than these. You have no idea what is coming, Nathaniel. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, which is this phrase in John that really should make us lean in. That's what Jesus says when he wants to get our attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is with that? Well, when Jesus, when Jesus says that Nathaniel will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, what Nathaniel is going to know is that Jesus is doing a throwback all the way to Genesis 28 
and and the story of Jacob, who is this forefather, excuse me, this patriarch of Israel, having a dream uh, that we often kind of call in in our like common culture uh, Jacob's ladder. So Jacob is this uh, this man who has unlike Nathaniel, deceived his brother, deceived his father to get a blessing and has run away because now his life is under threat because he's been so deceptive. And he's kind of camping out in the wilderness. He's using a rock as a pillow and he falls asleep and he has this dream. And in the dream in in Genesis 28, uh, kind of knowing the context at the time, what what we think was happening in his dream is that what he saw was probably like a temple. Uh, if you want to Google the image of it when you get home, it would be a ziggurat, right? This temple that had all of these steps that went up to the very top. And what was true about these temples is that people would have to ascend from the bottom to the top in order to worship God because that's where, that was the closest place you could get to God. So the whole, the whole religion was premised on there being intermediaries, intermediaries who would go up to the top and would, would go and meet with God on your behalf and then would come back down with messages from God for you. And what happens in Jacob's vision and Jacob's dream is that God is not at the top of the ladder, that God is down with him and is next to him in his dream. And God says to him, I will be with you. That's the promise that God's made to Jacob. And so when Jesus says, uh, the heavens will be open, you'll see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's pulling on that imagery, and what he's saying is, God is with you now. That I've come to reveal God to you because I'm God. That's what he's trying to communicate to Nathaniel. But what he knows for Nathaniel is this is going to be a slow burn. It's going to take Nathaniel quite a while to wrap his mind and his heart around that. And so he's promising Nathaniel, he's telling Nathaniel what's going to happen over the course of their relationship. Do you see how kind Jesus is here? That this man who would, who would greet Jesus with such skepticism, can anything good come out of Nazareth? To this man, Jesus gives a beautiful revelation of his full character. As the revelation of God on earth. And not only has he met Nathaniel with truth, he's given him far more than he could ever have asked or imagined in that one interaction. And that heart of Jesus that desires to reveal himself to his people is the same heart that Jesus has now. But that is the same heart that meets us in our skepticism is a heart that desires and delights to make himself known to us. And not because of what we've done, right? That the revelation is not about us climbing the steps to get to the top of the pyramid so we can finally meet with God. No, it's about God having come to us right where we are. That he's promised us to be with us and to reveal himself to us right where we are. that's true about how Jesus responds to skepticism? How do you respond to it? Do 
Do you ever feel skeptical about who God is? Do you ever wrestle with doubt? Would be another way of saying it. And how do you usually deal with that? Or how do you let your doubt deal with you? Do you try to hide it or ignore it? Do you try to keep it out of polite company in places like church? I can't possibly bring that in here. And what I want to encourage you in is that you would start treating your skepticism the same way that Jesus does. And that you would expect that he wants to be kind to you, that he wants to reveal himself to you, uh, not in spite of those places, but in those places. Because skepticism does not mean that something is wrong. That doubt is not even necessarily an absence of faith. That what it tells us is that our hope has grown weak. And that what we need is to be strengthened and encouraged. It's our heart's way so often of crying out, God, I want to know you and I want to see you. Where are you? So rather than beating yourself up for that or shaming yourself for that, which just as a side note, never works. You're never going to believe in Jesus more uh, because you're mad at yourself for being skeptical. It may kind of get you to the next day, but over time, all that does is burn you out and make you bitter. No, the invitation here is that we would bring all of our questions, all of our skepticism, all of our doubts to Jesus and that we would, that we would let him meet us there. That we would do what Nathaniel does, that we would come and see. And that in our coming and seeing that we would trust that we have a God who delights to reveal himself to us. That we're, that what's true about us as people is that we are people who have suffered much. That's true about you because you're a person and this is a hard world. I mean, it is, it is hard to believe that something as good and beautiful as the gospel could be true. That God would come among us, not, not because of what we have done, but because of how much he loves us. And that there is nothing that you or I have to do to earn his favor, but that it is a gift that's been freely bestowed on us. And that once you receive it, it's not a gift that we can ever lose. So easy to say, oh, that's too good to be true. In a world that is full, do you realize, our, we're, friends, we are conditioned uh, we are conditioned to be skeptical because how else could we live in a modern consumeristic world where we are always being bombarded with advertising? If you did not have some small dose of skepticism or a large dose of it, really, you'd be out of money in a flash because of all the things that if you just bought them, then you would finally be happy, right? Then you would finally be good looking. Then you would finally have all the things you ever wanted. We have to be skeptical. That's the world that we live in. And we bear that burden. It's so heavy with us. We bring it into everything that all of the good news that we ever hear, that we're, it's probably fake news, right? 
I mean, you think about what's just been unfolding uh, in Eastern Europe in the last week. All of, these, all of these reports coming out of Russia, all of these reports coming out of the Ukraine, and what people are trying to sift through is, what if this news is true and what if this news is false? Because we know that at work is a ton of disinformation. And so what we always bring is skepticism. We have to. But what if this good news, uh, although it is sometimes hard to understand, was actually so good that it, it could be true, that it is true? There's a song uh, by a woman named Jess Ray that I really love, and it's called Too Good. And she says, are you hungry and have no money? You can sit at this table. Are you thirsty and unworthy? You can drink from this well. Are you weak? Are you poor? Are you wanting for more in the quiet of your heart? To say to yourself, you say, I wish someone would pass my way and give me a new start. It may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. In our skepticism, in our doubts, in the pain and all the things that make us reject and push away a hope that sounds good, too, too good to be true, the call of this passage is would, would we lean in and would we treat our skepticism the way Jesus does as an invitation to come to him and to know life, to find it to the full? I want to talk kind of as we close about what this means for us then as a community that would be a come and see community. Because we were talking about that in January, that what we want to be true about us is that we would be people like Philip, who would have experienced for ourselves this news that is uh, not too good to be true. And that because of that, we, want, we would want other people to come and see. And I think that this passage here gives us some perspective on what uh, to expect when we do that. Because what we often expect, isn't it, when we think about saying to other people, hey, come and see Jesus, that what we assume we're going to be met with is skepticism, right? Do any of you ever assume that? That is what I often assume. And I'll just tell you, often that's true. But do you know sometimes it's not? That there, there are people in our world who are curious about Jesus, and if you've grown up in the South or you've grown up around the church, it's hard for you to imagine that there are people who don't know much about him. But I promise you, those people are real. And they live on your streets. They're not just in some far off country. But there are people right, right around us who, who, are, who, don't, who don't know that much about Jesus, who don't carry all of the baggage that we carry, who are legitimately wondering, who is this guy? Come and see. But sometimes we say come and see like Philip and we get met with what Nathaniel gave him. <laughs> In Nazareth, right? <laughs> Down the street at your church? Okay. Come and see. Why is that so hard for us to be met with that kind of skepticism? I don't know. I could probably talk about a lot of theories about why that might be true. 
I think part of it is that we are afraid of rejection. I know I am, right? But sometimes I feel like if you are skeptical about Jesus, then what I have to do is have all of the answers for you. But it's my job to make you not skeptical. Okay. That's not true. You can say, come and see, and not have all of the answers. Jesus has them. He may or may not give them. But you're not asking people to come and see you. You're inviting them to come and see Jesus, right? I can't say come and see. Look at my own life. It's a mess. Yes. So is mine. But we're not asking people to come and see us. We're asking them to come and see Jesus. And we're not asking them to come uh, just to an event, right? To church or to small group or to, yeah, I mean, yes to those things also. But what we're hoping people see here when they join us on, in, our, in our discussions about scripture, when they join us at our events, what we're hoping they see is Jesus. That's what we're hoping they see in our lives, not because we are amazing, but because what we believe is that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, changing us, making us more like him. And I was thinking about, what, is, what does this look like when it's worked out in the world? And so I'm going to tell you a story, okay? So this is, uh, I'm going to imagine being back, we're going to go back like 70 years, okay, like to the early 1950s. There's this family uh, that has six kids. And they've just moved out of, uh, of a work camp where there's a dirt floor and a shack and a tarp over the roof. And that they've moved out with their six kids into a, into a home that's still kind of a shack. Uh, and, and right after that, the mom has contracted tuberculosis, which then was almost a death sentence. So she's taken away to a sanitarium, which is like a hospital in total isolation. And so her six kids are left to be raised by their dad, who then the next day abandons them because of his own stuff, right? Alcoholic, wanderer, and he leaves. And so these six kids, from 16 to 3 years old, are left on their own. And then a few days later, on Sunday, uh, the church van that comes by and picks them up and takes them to church on Sundays comes by like it always does. And that what the people at that church realize is that these children are, uh, they have no parents anymore. So they pick them up and they take them to church and that is the last time that those kids are left without adults to care for them. Because what that church does is they care for those children. They take them into their homes. They adopt them. And for nine months, uh, they drive them up to see their mom at the sanitarium where she waves from a balcony. And then they go home and they live with these people. And when, uh, when my great-grandma got out of the sanitarium and went home, and my grandma went back to her house, she was a changed 10-year-old. Because she had seen something uh, that she never could have imagined. Something that for her was too good to be understood but was not too good to be true. And that what she had seen is that it was possible for a family, uh, people in a family to love each other and to have a life together. 
to see that there could be order in a world, in her world instead of chaos. She didn't see a family that was perfect, but she saw a family where there was hope. And she saw that because she saw Jesus in these people. And that this little Mennonite church was dedicated to her and her siblings for the rest of their lives. Uh, they would bring them over on Sundays. They would do church together. They would take them home to their houses, feed them lunch, a big lunch, right? Then the kids would go out and play. They'd come back in for dinner. They'd go to church again, and they'd get dropped off at home. And my grandma and her five siblings um, had plenty in their stories that took them very far away from Jesus. But what, what she's told me and what all of her siblings would attest to is that when things got bad, they knew where to go. Because they had, they had, people had said to them, come and see Jesus. And they had met him and they had tasted him and they knew that he was good. So when there was nowhere else to go, they knew where to go and it was to Jesus. And it changed their lives. My life is different because there were people who were willing to say to that little 10-year-old, come and see. Because what's true about our God is that he always works through relationships. We see that all throughout the scriptures. We see it all throughout John. We see it all throughout John 1 and these stories that we're just talking about. That this come and see, come and see, come and see, it always happens through people. Not extra special people, people like me, people like you. And if you were to think about your life, right, and how you know Jesus, how you have tasted and seen that he's good, isn't it through relationships? Who's the person? Who is the person who showed Jesus to you? Who are the people? And that our heartbeat, our desire as a congregation is we would be those kind of people who say to others, come and see. Come and see with us. Come and see this Jesus who has met us in our doubt and our skepticism and our hardness of heart. A Jesus who can be hard to understand but is not too good to be true. Pray with me. Jesus, we, we praise you and we thank you for your kind and generous heart. Lord, your heart that does, delights to reveal itself, uh, delights to reveal yourself to hard-hearted people like us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would soften us. Lord, that there would be a hope that you breathe into our skepticism, Lord, and that, that what that would draw out of us would be worship of you and curiosity to know you more. Lord, that the joy and the life of being connected to you would spill out of us in the invitation to come and see. And Father, we pray that as we worship you now, that you would be even now enlightening our hearts, that you would give us uh, a deeper experience and understanding of who you are as we come to you now uh, to see you and to worship you. For all your goodness, and all your glory. Amen.